everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you joined us today. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ken the Samples. We're going to be talking about his new book, Christianity Cross-Examined, right there on the screen. Um, talking about kind of like objections to Christianity with regards to like the rationality, the relevance, and whether the belief is good. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm super excited for this conversation. And today we're going to be looking at this book, what's going on here, and then looking at questions surrounding like maybe like the rationality of Christian belief and like the goodness of Christian belief um, and focusing on a lot of objections from like the new atheists and such. So to start off, do you want to talk a little bit like about like who you are and what you do and what got you interested in things like this? Yeah, happy to do it. Um, well, I work at the uh, an apologetic organization called Reasons to Believe. It focuses uh, especially on science faith issues, but I'm part of the scholar team, but I'm not a scientist. My background is in philosophy and theology. And uh, prior to working at Reasons to Believe, uh, a couple decades ago, I worked at the Christian Research Institute, uh, where I occasionally hosted the Bible Answer Man program. So I've been doing apo Christian apologetics professionally for about 35 years, and uh, I'm grateful that the Lord has given me opportunities to uh, to communicate the gospel and to show it, that it is a, a defensible faith. Mm, that's super great. Um, so today we're going to be looking at like this book, Christianity Cross-Examined, um, and we're going to be talking about um, just all kinds of different aspects of the book. So to start off, like, what's the inspiration for this book and what you got, got you started in writing this? Yeah, I would say, Zach, that, uh, you know, to go back to my time at the Christian Research Institute in the late 80s and early 90s, when I would go to the university and give talks, uh, sometimes to faculty, often with students, the kinds of questions I got in those days were almost exclusively truth questions. Does God exist? Is Jesus the son of God? Uh, is there evidence that he rose from the dead? But Moving to my time at Reasons to Believe, I would say about 10 or 15 years ago, I noticed that when I went to the university, I got different kinds of questions. Every once in a while, they would ask me a truth question, but often they would ask me questions about whether Christianity has been a good force in the world. It, has Christianity been good for racial minorities? Has it been good for women? Uh, what about uh, the character of the God of the Old Testament? What about some of the dark sides of Christian history? And so I thought, wow, I think that I'm seeing somewhat of a change in focus. Or to put it philosophically, it seems like we've moved from kind of a, a modernist perspective to a postmodernist perspective, where people are very interested in questions about uh, goodness and relevancy. So uh, I, that's kind of how I shaped the book. The first half of the book addresses whether Christianity is rational. The second half of the book addresses the question of whether Christianity is itself good. And of course, I put relevancy in that good part. Yeah, that's super helpful. And it's interesting just thinking about like, like I'm 20 years old and a lot of the people like that I know and like my circles that have deconverted, it's interesting because like a lot of people that leave 
I don't really know of many people where they're like, well, I just didn't find the evidence for God that compelling or like the problem of evil that really messed me up. But a lot of times it comes to like, well, have you read like first Timothy or looked at like the old Testament and like that God, he seems so immoral or like things like that. And it's interesting. Um, Cause it's like the kind of the question that your book tries to address. Um, and one of the first things you bring forth that's super fruitful, I think Ken, is this idea of like talking about like the two different kinds of atheism um, that plays an important role in like studying the stage. So what's going on here with the two kinds of atheism that are addressed? Yeah, let me make a couple comments about that. Uh, when I was first studying philosophy, so again, that would put me back in the late 70s, early 80s, I started reading uh, some of the secular philosophies. I, uh, I read Antony Flew, I read uh, J.L. Mackey, I read A.J. Ayer, Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre. I'm gonna call those atheists the old atheists. And I, I distinguish them from the new atheists. Now, the new atheists, of course, the, the four horsemen of the new atheism, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Dan Dennett. I would also put people in there, uh, maybe Jerry Coyne, for example, and uh, uh, Peter Atkins at Oxford University. Now, let me, let me contrast those two types of atheists and, and then offer... Uh, a paradigm. I think the old atheists, uh, Zach, were more formidable. And the reason I think that is that I think the old atheists tended to stick with arguments. And I think the old atheists, by and large, they had an understanding of Christianity. I think the reason was that they grew up at a time in which Christianity was a dominant religion. And they were to some degree, kind of forced to take Christianity seriously. So in some ways, they knew more about the Christian faith. For example, Friedrich Nietzsche, his father was a Lutheran minister, and Nietzsche had a real understanding of Christianity. He used to kind of needle Christians and say, if you want me to, act, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, why don't you act a little more redeemed? Meaning that he recognized that Christians were imperfect and compared with Christ, there was quite a contrast. I also think the old atheists are more formidable in this sense. I think that the new atheists spend a lot of their time using sarcasm and, and, and ridicule. And uh, I, I would say that uh, I've discovered that there may be two types of atheists. Now, understand, Zach, that I'm using this as kind of an example. I'm not saying that people fit neatly into these two categories. You can think of it as a paradigm, if you will. I think of two types of atheists. One type of atheist would say something like this. He would say, you know, um, it may not be a, a bad idea if God existed. I mean, if there was a God, maybe I would survive the death of my body. Maybe I'd be reunited with my family. Maybe there would be some kind of ultimate meaning to life. The hmm. problem is, however, there's no good reason to believe that God exists. There's no, yeah. there's no rational support for it. Now, another type of atheist would say something like this. Oh, no, there, there are reasons for God, and there are rational people who believe in God. But I'm sorry, I don't want that God to exist. I'm opposed to that God. Now, again, these are kind of examples. They're paradigms. They're not meant to fit perfect people in. But if I were to name two atheists, I think Graham Oppie might say something like, there's just no evidence for God, even if there are good reasons, even if there would be good things 
about God's existence, I've heard him say, for example, it's impossible that God would exist. On the other side, I think Thomas Nagel, a professor at New York University, a, a philosopher of mind, I, I have heard him say, oh, I think that there are reasons to believe in God. And in fact, he says he's impressed with some Christian philosophers, but he says, I don't want that God to exist. I think to some degree then, if we have those two types of atheists, for one, we need to show them that God is rational. For the other, we need to try to convince them that Christianity is a good thing. That's exactly what I try to do in my book. Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, and before we get into like the rationality um, and like the goodness of Christianity, we could just talk about like the relevance. Because um, I think some people today look at like religion as like this old thing of the past where it's fading away. Um, we're progressing. We're climbing up the secular city and building this new thing. So like, why think in the beginning, just first off, that Christianity is still relevant today? Yeah. Well, let me use a couple of examples. Uh, you know, the idea, this biblical idea that goes back to the uh, the book of Genesis chapter one, the idea that human beings are made in the image of God. I mean, this idea that because we bear the Lord's image, we have dignity, we have value. I would say the sacredness of human life is in large measure grounded on this idea that we bear the image of the Lord. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, people at the time who attempted to abolish slavery, they were convinced that blacks could not be enslaved. It was evil to enslave them because they were image bearers. They bore the Lord's image. So I think when we're trying to discover uh, reasons for giving people dignity, I mean, scripture says that God created male, female in the image of God. Um, Paul in Galatians chapter three says that there's no difference between Jew, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, we're all one in Christ. Therefore, in creation and redemption, I think it, it indicates that human beings have dignity. And, and since we care about issues like race, we care about questions uh, relating to sex and class, I think Christianity is extremely relevant because it tells us that all human beings, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their sex, regardless of their financial condition, their health, or any other condition, they have dignity and value. I think that makes Christianity and the Bible quite relevant. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I was thinking about this. Like one of my really good friends is an atheist. Um, we were just talking the other day, and I was like, "Well, what do you think about morality?" And, like he's like, "Yeah, moral realism is true." Like he's a very convinced like more realist. And he's like, well, how do I, and he gets like, how do you ground it? And he's like, well, I don't know. And I'm still thinking about that. But like this idea of like more realism and like this, like th we have this intuition that like things are wrong. Like there's just things that are wrong and things that are right. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I think that's a great place to start um, talking about like the relevance of the Christian faith. Um, so the next thing we have on, on the docket here is talking about like the rationality of Christian belief. And one of the first questions is always like, well, how does faith work with reason? We have seemingly these two like juxtaposed things. So um, how does faith work with reason, Ken? Yeah, I think a good definition of faith and this definition we see in various Christian thinkers through the centuries. Uh, I think it starts out largely in St. Augustine. We see it again in Anselm. To some degree, we see it in Thomas Aquinas, and we see it in other Protestant thinkers as well. It, it defines faith this way, 
that faith, and the Greek word is pistuo, that's to believe, the noun is pistis, to have faith, that faith is confident trust in a credible or reliable source. Now, now again, it's important to realize that the biblical word for faith means trust, confidence. But it's not trust in anything. It's not, it's not a blind trust. It is confident trust in a reliable or credible source. So the very definition of faith, according to historic Christianity, involves a rational component. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you add to that, faith involves knowledge. To be a Christian, you have to have knowledge. So faith involves knowledge. Who was Jesus? What do we know about his life? What do we know about his character? How about his death, then his resurrection? So faith uh, has a rational component. Faith involves uh, knowledge. And of course, we can, we can also recognize that, uh, that in the New Testament, uh, the apostles and even Jesus himself invite people to test to see if these things are true, to recognize them. So it's certainly the case that there have been Christians from time to time in church history that were kind of anti-intellectual. But I think generally historic Christianity has, has prized both faith and reason and sees them as compatible. Hmm. So I'm wondering then, like, one objection might be like, well, okay, so we can come through, like, maybe, like, reason to the conclusion that, like, 2 plus 2 equals 4, or, like, the, the quadratic formula holds, like, something like that in, like, mathematics, um, or maybe, like, we can use reason to come to, like, scientific conclusions about maybe, like, the Big Bang or something like that, but then faith seems like it goes, like, beyond the reason, like, it's not like there's obviously, like, like this airtight proof that God exists, um, or, like, Jesus rose from the dead, um, so we come to that through faith, so it seems like, well, yeah, there is reason, but faith and reason are like these separate things. They aren't really meant to be hand in hand. Like you can't have faith and reason in something. Yeah, I think that's a fair, that's a fair critique. I would say this, I, I would say that Christianity has uh, mysteries. I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity, that one, that the one God is one in essence, but three in personhood or the incarnation that Jesus is a single person with both a divine and human nature, or that his death on the cross was a means of atonement. All of these things are mysterious. None of these truths can be fully exhaustively comprehended by human reason or by the human mind, but they're not irrational. For example, with the Trinity, uh, we don't say God is one and not one, three and not three. Rather, we say the way in which God is one, his essence or being, is different from the way that he is three in his personhood or subsistence. Or the incarnation. We don't say the divinity divinizes the humanity or the humanity drags down uh, the divinity. We, we say that we can present these mysterious truths in, in a way that is rationally consistent. And so I think the early church, when they wrote the creeds, when they decided how to communicate the Trinity, the incarnation, they prized both reason and revelation. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, and the next thing I want to talk about, I think it will be super helpful because I think it's like an opportunity for like bridge building. This idea of like there being like a first cause or necessary being because you devote a chapter talking about like the different kinds of cosmological arguments. Um, so I'm curious, like I think, at least in my opinion, like this is a great place where we can potentially like bid, build bid bridges like with people with, we disagree. So do you think skeptics and Christians um, can agree that there must be some sort of like first cause or necessary being or something like that, and like maybe like build bridges? I think so. And, and um, you know, I, I would say based on that idea, I think bridge building is a really good idea. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, according to scripture, all people are made in God's image. Mm -hmm. All people see the testimony of general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. All people have a conscience, Romans 1 and 2. And all people are recipients of general grace. The Lord allows his sunshine, his rain to fall on all people. I would therefore say that there is a, a type of natural law. Uh, you know, when you look at all the major religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, they all have the second five of the Ten Commandments. It seems like we have a connectedness when it comes to reason and morality. And to draw your particular question, I do. I, I think it's reasonable to say that if anything now exists, and I think most of us are willing to say that something exists, I exist, you seem to exist, we're in the studio here, the world seems to exist. If anything now exists, then something must be eternal or something non-eternal emerged from nothing. Now, when we look at the world and we look at all of the things we encounter, it seems that the world and all of the particulars of the world are contingent, they're dependent. I mean, even Big Bang cosmology seems to indicate that the universe, matter, energy, space, and time had a singular beginning. Um, and therefore, the idea that something would come from literally nothing, I mean, think about what nothing would be. No matter, energy, time, space, no mind, no reason, no actual, no potential, no numbers, no math, no logic. I mean, something coming from absolute nothing, I don't think anybody really believes that. I mean, even... Mm. even um, people like Stephen Hawking or Lawrence Krauss who talk about something coming from nothing, it's not really nothing. They're, it's already part of the universe, quantum foam, or with Hawking, it's the law of gravity. It seems to me it is reasonable to conclude that there, something is eternal. Now, the atheist is going to say, well, maybe the universe is eternal, whereas we're going to say, no, the universe doesn't give characteristics of being eternal. But there must be an eternal God, a first cause, a God that is independent of time and space. So I think there is a place in which we can talk about uh, the idea. In fact, uh, uh, Zach, I think one of the most powerful uh, varieties of the cosmological argument is that contingency argument, mm -hmm. that, that reality seems contingent and therefore cries out to an ultimate first cause or a necessary reality.
Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you because I think like like I, I enjoy like thinking about like the Kalam and stuff, but then I look I think about like contingency arguments and like they just get around like all of those like objections. Um, I think that the Kalam still can get through, but it's just like it's a lot less work for the theist. Um, but I agree with you. Like I think bridge building is so important, and I think when we can say like, hey, you know, like you're an atheist, I'm a Christian, we both agree there has to be some sort of like necessary being or first cause. Um, we can start from there and kind of work from there. So I'm curious then, Ken, um, while we're on this topic, like how do you connect their, the dots from there being like maybe like a necessary being or a first cause to uh, God existing? Yeah, well, I, I think you can do it in a variety of ways. Um, I, I think when we look at the universe, again, Big Bang cosmological model uh, indicates that there must be a, a singular being to time, space, matter, and energy. I mean, even if you propose the, the multiverse, now I object to that because I don't think that there's any observational evidence. I don't think there's any observational science that convinces us that there are uh, a world ensemble or multiple universes. But even if there were, uh, that wouldn't be inconsistent with the idea that there is a creator, a mind behind the universe. And we could even ask, what is the source for, of the multiverse itself? Mm -hmm. I think we can also uh, focus in, in these kinds of terms. You know, how do, we, how do we understand the complexity of the universe, the design of the universe? And I would uh, even approach it this way. Um, you know, intelligent people, whether they're secular or religious, when they want to solve problems, they usually appeal to things like mathematics and logic and reason. Well, what grounds all of that? How, you know, if you're if there is no mind behind the universe and our minds are the product of blind mechanistic natural processes, can we really have confidence that logic and reason? give us truth about the nature of reality. So I think all of this kind of points us back to uh, the rationality of a first cause of an independent mind. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I like how you think about that, uh, looking at like all the evidence and kind of like pointing towards there being like some sort of like mind at the, at the end of things. Um, so the next question I have for you, the last thing regarding the rationality of um, Christian faith is like, how do we approach the mystery such as like um, tr the Trinity or the incarnation, um, these things that are like, it's so hard to get our minds around sometimes. Um, and some people would point to them and say, hey, this is shows like the irrationality of Christian faith. So how do we approach these, mi these uh, mysteries? Yeah, maybe a way in which we can, you know, begin with our secular friends is, there are a lot of things in science we can't exhaustively understand. I mean, quantum mechanics seems mm -hmm. kind of mysterious to us. By mysterious, we don't mean that it's irrational, but we mean that we can't fully, completely understand it. So I, mm -hmm. I think that there are things even in the nat natural world. For example, consciousness, uh, whether you have, uh, whether you posit a secular explanation or a religious, a Christian explanation, consciousness is mysterious. So to propose the idea that the Trinity or the incarnation uh, are, are truths that are mysterious, but yet still rational, seems to be consistent. I mean, again, I can state the Trinity in such a way that it, that it does not violate the law of non-contradiction. And I think that the early church, and, and again, when it came to the Trinity or the incarnation, there were people that 
brought forth heresies. These were truths that denied the Trinity or denied the incarnation. So apologists, uh, philosophers, theologians got together and they proposed ways of presenting the Trinity. So again, I don't think the Trinity is a contradiction. I can't fully understand it. I can't totally comprehend it. I don't know the the persons in the Godhead as they know themselves. Why? Because God is eternal. God is infinite. I'm finite and temporal. But that doesn't mean that the Trinity can't be articulated in a way that is consistent with reason. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And what we do now is transition now into the second section, um, talking about like the goodness of Christian faith. And I do want to say before we get into this section, um, there's a link down below to Ken's books. You can check out everything we're talking about here in a lot more detail. Um, it's a really great read. So you can check that out. Easy to read. Um, and you can also, if you enjoy the channel, please consider um, becoming a member, patron, things like that. That always helps. But looking at like the goodness of Christianity, like um, there's a lot of objections here. And one of the big ones is like Old Testament genocide. Um, the question of like, is God commanding genocide? Like, in my own like Bible reading this morning, I was in Deuteronomy 2 where it talks about um, and they devoted everything to the Lord and all the destruction and whatnot. Um, so like how do you approach like Old Testament um, and the supposed genocides going on here? Yeah, I, I think uh, and I think you're exactly right. I think the question of, uh, of Joshua's conquest of the Canaanites is probably right at the top of the list where people say, wow. In the New Testament, you have Jesus, he is gracious, he's kind, he's loving. But then you have this Old Testament God, Yahweh or Jehovah, and he seems to be bloodthirsty, he seems to be wrathful. Well, I think there's a number of things that we can say. One of the points I, I like to begin with is that the Canaanites were a, a reprobate nation. They were involved in uh, actions that were deeply immoral. For example, they had, as part of their religion, child sacrifice. Uh, they, they had uh, sexual relations with animals. Um, this was in many ways kind of a perverted and wicked religion. Now, God doesn't, God doesn't destroy them immediately. Uh, for 400 years, the prophets are preaching to the pagan nations, telling them there is a creator. Uh, he has a moral standard. You have been made in God's image. You need to move away from this. Uh, and yet they reject it. And so God commands uh, Joshua uh, to destroy the Canaanite religion. Now, Christians take two differing positions here. Some people think that scripture indicates that the goal of, of Joshua was not to destroy all of the Canaanite people, men, women, and children. Rather, it was to displace the people and to destroy the religion. And so uh, somebody like Paul Copan, who is a Christian friend, an ethicist, a philosopher, he holds the displacement view, meaning that he believes that the language of destruction, you know, uh, annihilate every man, woman, and child, drag the ground, that this was hyperbole. It was kind of warfare hyperbole that was very common for the time, that in reality, uh, women and children were not targeted by the armies of Israel. And uh, therefore, the Canaanite religion was displaced. Uh, and there is some evidence for that. It appears that uh, some of the people that were uh, the target of it, nevertheless, uh, were not destroyed. Uh, 
now, Zach, other, other scholars differ. <coughs> Excuse me. Other scholars think, for example, that God brought forth a judgment upon uh, the Canaanites. And that would be the idea that God, in fact, did destroy through the, uh, Isra the Israelite armies, uh, Joshua in particular, um, and that he, he killed men, women, and children. Now, the idea there is that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, let me take a, a sip of water here. You're all good. Don't worry. Take your time. Um, that idea, <coughs> excuse me, that idea is that that uh, God is different than human beings. God gives life, therefore God can take it. And uh, the idea would be that even if children were targeted, uh, in some respects it would be a mercy because those children would have grown up in paganism. They would have suffered ultimately the wrath of God by, by being killed. Maybe they were forgiven and brought to heaven. Um, the, the idea there would be that, um, you know, God cannot allow morally uh, these kinds of things to exist. And <clears throat> again, I think that uh, had God not brought forth judgment upon the Canaanites, maybe our atheist friends would turn around and say, well, why didn't God do anything? Hmm. So God is holy, he is He is good, he is benevolent, he is loving, but he can't be loving if he's not just. Mm -hmm. And he can't be just if he's not loving. And therefore mm -hmm. the actions were like a corporate capital punishment. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. And um, one kind of like, I think, common like pushback I think of like when I'm when I'm trying to like figure this out because I really don't know what to think about all this going on still um but it's the idea of like okay well yeah the Canaanites obviously did a lot of bad things and they did child sacrifice and like things like this um but it's still like, like western culture like we like make a very common practice of abortion which is something that we'd see as something similar to that and like there's all kinds of other things like that are common in western culture that are contrary to like christian values in a sense um so like wouldn't god then just be just in like wiping out like western civilization like would it open the door to like those kind of like possibilities then um so there's that kind of worry that i'm curious about like what your response yeah. is to that then well, um, I do think it's reasonable uh, to conclude, Zach, that if people adopt the position that you can have an abortion all the way up to birth, um, this is deeply concerning. Um, I, I think it's I think it is an infanticide at that point of view. Um, and I think that what we recognize, however, from Scripture is that God, before he brings forth his judgment, he allows people an opportunity to repent, to stop, to change the course. But if they if they refuse, God's wrath will come forward. And I, I agree with you. I think there are some things in modern society that give me concern that maybe we are, we're moving in a direction where uh, we may earn the wrath of God. And so Think of what C.S. Lewis said <clears throat> about Aslan. He said that Aslan was good, but he's not safe. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people think about God as if he's kind of a sleepy grandfather being. But, but remember that while God is benevolent, good, and loving, 
He's also completely holy and completely just. Um, you know, if if people came into my city and uh, murdered and raped and pillaged, I would expect that a that a judge would would hold those people accountable and punish them. So the idea that God does punish, that God does bring justice, seems to me consistent with my idea of goodness and love. Hmm. Yeah, it's super helpful, and we're going to keep on moving on for the sake of time here. Um, this next one kind of goes with the the question of, like, Old Testament slavery. This is a common thing, thing that's seen thrown out as, like, well, you know, the Bible endorses slavery or it allows for slavery, and, like, no perfect being would allow that. Um, so what are your thoughts on, like, Old Testament slavery with, like, the goodness of Christianity, Ken? Yeah, it's a it's such an important question because we're, we're living at a time where people are very sensitive about a race, about ethnicities. Uh, and the question of slavery comes up. <clears throat> I would, Zach, I would say a couple things. Number one, I would say that almost every culture in the ancient world practiced slavery. Uh, the Romans, uh, the Greeks, uh, the Egyptians. Uh, there, I can't name one ancient civilization that didn't practice slavery. So it's important to realize that uh, maybe slavery is a human problem rather than a Jewish or Christian problem, or, or rather than pointing to uh, Caucasians, for example. It seems that human beings have a problem with slavery. We, we have a tendency to, to oppress. We have a tendency to control, to use other people. Now, having said that, I don't think what is commonly known as slavery fits with what we find in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, I think you primarily have what we might call indentured servitude. That is, uh, the indentured servitude of the Old Testament in large measure addressed the problem of poverty. In the ancient world, there was no safety net. There was no welfare. Uh, there was no place to go if you couldn't pay your bills. And so you had a process where people would sell their livelihood. They would sell themselves to other people and work for them, and their, their needs would be met. Um, but in this indentured servitude, people were not treated as if they were just mere property that you could beat them and uh, you could kill them if you want. In fact, there are principles in the Old Testament because of the Mosaic law that says that uh, masters have to be responsible for the people that are their workers or their bond servants. So I think it's a mistake to look at the antebellum slavery, the slavery of near the Civil War, and then to read that back into the Old Testament. I don't think it fits. Um, in fact, uh, one Old Testament scholar said there's only one law in the history of the ancient world that held masters accountable uh, for the way they treated slaves, and that's the Mosaic Code. So you, you can say that, hey, why didn't God do something differently? But I would say God cares. Uh, in, in fact, here's a great quote. <clears throat> it comes from uh, Houston Smith, who was a leading scholar of the world's religions. He contrasted the gods of Olympus, these are the Greco-Roman gods, with the god of Sinai, uh, the God of the Old Testament. He said the gods of Mount Olympus, 
they're all about seducing the maidens. That's all they're after. But he said the God of Sinai, Yahweh, Jehovah, he's watching over the widows. He's watching over the orphans. He's watching over the aliens, the immigrants. He looks out for people who can't look out for themselves. And I remember, Zach, as a boy, I used to listen to Martin Luther King preach, the great civil rights leader. He was mm. always quoting the Old Testament about God cares about people who uh, lack power and lack food and lack money. Those are some mm. of the things I try to bring up. Hmm. That's super interesting and worth thinking about. Um, and the next objection we have to like the goodness of Christianity is what, at least in like sophisticated circles, is called like the moral meager fruits argument, where um, it's that idea of like, well, Christians just end up acting like everyone else, and like supposedly like if if, if a Christian like you or I can has this like full revelation from God, um, we yeah. should be significantly like morally superior to like other people, maybe um, doing things right more or something along these lines. But like time and time again, we see like the moral failings of Christians, like. Like celebrity pastors or like the failings of like Robbie Zacharias or like all these things. Um, and there's these terrible things that happen. Um, and, and they're supposedly Christian. So like what's going on here if like Christianity is true? So how would you respond to this kind of like objection to the Christian faith? Well, the first thing I'd want to say is remember that the Bible says that all people are fallen. We're all made in the image of God. We have inherent dignity and moral worth. But the Bible says that something has catastrophically gone wrong with the human race. The Bible describes it as original sin, as the fall. So if the Bible is true, we should be able to see that human beings have moral flaws. So if you're going to turn around and say, well, look, Christians are flawed. Remember, the Bible says that all people are flawed. Uh, and I might turn to my non-Christian friend and say, what about you? Uh, do you suffer from flaws? Do you suffer, for example, from selfishness, uh, pride, mm -hmm. egotism? I think I would also add, Zach, that you have to remember, too, many of the great things that Christianity has brought forward through individuals. I mean, you look at somebody like Mother Teresa, who, who sacrifices her entire life, commits herself to going to India to care for uh, children that are very ill and very sick, caring for the dying. Uh, you think of, uh, you know, movements like uh, the abolition of slavery, uh, both in Europe and in America, most of the people who, who, who objected to slavery held Christian convictions. Now, let me, let me speak to the question of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is never a good thing. I can't defend what uh, Rabbi Zacharias did. Uh, I can't defend pastors who embezzle money or even worse are, are involved in, in physical or sexual harm of other people. All of that is contrary to the teaching of Christ. But I would say that that is a very small minority. I mean, I know hundreds of pastors, uh, ministers, scholars, uh, Zach, the vast majority of them are very dedicated. They're not perfect, but they're sacrificial. They give. They're not looking to, to get wealthy. Uh, they don't care about being, you know, being famous. They, they want to help God's people. They want to extend uh, God's kingdom. And I guess maybe a, a further point, Zach, is, yeah, hypocrisy is problematic, but Jesus was no hypocrite. 
that is the truth of Christianity rests upon the person of Jesus Christ. And here you have somebody who is the total opposite of a hypocrite. I mean, Jesus lives an extraordinary life. Even, even people who are against him, who oppose him, they can't find flaw in him. Pontius Pilate says, I find no reason to charge this man. Jesus says to his family members and to the religious leaders of the time, who, who of you can point to a fault in me? I think the reason that Jesus is the most consequential person who has ever lived on planet Earth is because he seems to be beyond the flaws of human beings. Uh, here's another quote from Houston Smith. Again, not necessarily a Christian. He said the difference between Jesus is not that he preached the Sermon on the Mount, but he appears to have lived the moral values contained in that sermon. I would say, look, you know, if you're around Zach and you're around Ken Samples, you're going to see flaws in us. You're going to see imperfections in us. We may let you down, but I have a promise. Jesus Christ will never let you down. And the real question of the truth of Christianity is whether he is a hypocrite and there is no sign of hypocrisy in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's, that's super great. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Ken. Um, so the last objection I have to you, and then we're going to do a little bit of audience Q&A. So if you have questions, feel free to send those in. And if there's any super chats, we'll be sure to address those first. Um, is, isn't Christianity just like hopelessly divided? Like we have like one of the common objections, like we have denominations among denominations among denominations. Um, yeah. so like what's going on here? So um, how can we ever understand Christianity if there's just so many different denominations? So what are your thoughts here on this kind of objection, Ken? Yeah, I appreciate that. In fact, I think that ch I have a chapter, I think it's chapter 10 that raises the question, isn't Christian, isn't Christendom hopelessly divided? And I, mm -hmm. Zach, I care a lot about that question because I grew up as a Roman Catholic in college. I became an evangelical Protestant. I, I have a lot of Catholic friends. I have Catholic relatives. I have a lot mm -hmm. of Protestant friends. I, I have friends and scholars who are in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I have friends who are on the Reformed side, others on the Wesleyan side, Baptist, Anglican. Um, I guess I would say a couple things to that. I would say, first of all, that there's a lot more common ground and agreement than there is difference. Mm, um, yeah. You know, when it, when it comes to the great doctrines of the faith, conservative Catholics, conservative Orthodox, conservative Protestants, they affirm the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the second coming, salvation by grace. Um, Christians have a great commonality when it comes to social and moral issues. We believe in, in life. We believe in marriage. We believe that human beings have dignity and we have value. And then all of the branches of Christendom, including all of the Protestant denominations, we share the same worldview. We believe in creation. We believe in fall. We believe in redemption, consummation. So I think that there is a lot more common ground than many people understand. But I still want to go further, and I want to be honest. I think Christians need to work harder at uh, showing unity and charity among each other. I think there are times where Christians engage in lots of squabbling. I think sometimes we allow minor differences to become major differences. So, you know, part of the criticism that 
people have that Christianity is divided, I think Christians have to accept it. And I think we need to, to work harder at, um, we certainly need to hold on to the truth. I mean, Catholics and Protestants have differences about the Pope, about the authority of the Bible, about grace, faith, and works. Uh, we have differences about Mary and the saints. There's differences among Orthodox, Catholics, and Protestants. But I, I think that what I try to do, I like to think of myself as a peacemaker. I like to think of myself as a person who brings Christians together. So I contend for the truth as Jude teaches me, but I promote unity and I try to extend charity to Christians who might have differences with some of my doctrinal beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like how you put that, Ken, um, in terms of like trying to like build bridges, but also standing up and contending for truth, because I think it's two very important things. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, what we'll do now is we'll turn to a little bit of Q&A. See so if you have questions or super chats, um, feel free to put those in. We'll get through a little bit. Um, Susan says hello to Ken. So I uh, mm -hmm. wanted to bring that in there. Um, the first question we have was from, I'm pulling it up here, from BDS. Um, which, like, well, How can someone go through the act of killing a baby? So I don't know if this was like directly a question, but I think the idea is like, okay, so some interpretations of like these, these war passages in the Old Testament require like God commanding the killing of all people. Um, and we get to like this idea of like, when I, at least when I think about it, I'm like the idea of like killing a baby, like I'm like, where I have like nieces that are like two years old. I'm like, I just have this intuition that that's just wrong. Like, it doesn't matter like who the parents are or what they did. Like, that's just wrong. Um, so like, what are your thoughts on like God potentially commanding this and like how you would respond to this, Ken? Yeah, I, I think the first thing that I would say is that uh, a lot of our concern about the targeting of non-combatants, uh, in this case, particularly children, I think has largely taught to us from Christianity. Christianity teaches us that life has value, uh, that, that children have a certain level of innocence and they should be protected. So I think to some degree, uh, our concerns about some of these, uh, you know, these warfare uh, uh, passages in the Old Testament, they kind of conflict with being gentle, being kind, being gracious, being forgiving. But I, I want to add to that. I Again, I want to draw the attention that there are Old Testament scholars who say that the goal of Joshua was displacement. It was not to kill every single person, including children. But what about those who think it's a judgment? Well, remember, God gives life. God can take life. He, he is in a position where the whole world belongs to him. He can take he can take Canaanite land and give it to the Israelites. He can take children. I think you could also propose this, that uh, if that child grew up in the Canaanite civilization, uh, it would be it would be brought into great evil. And ultimately, if it engaged in child sacrifice, if it engaged in sex with animals, if temple sacrifice, uh, I think the child would suffer the wrath of God. Some people would see the killing of the children as, uh, as a mercy. Now, I, I know that's not easy to take, uh, mm -hmm. but again, I would fall back on the idea that God preached for 400 years for Canaanites to repent, and they would not. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's super helpful. So I appreciate your answer there, Ken. Um, the next question was from Jonah. It's also relating to like the biblical genocide um, violence kind of idea. And it's like, um, does this argument assume that the evidence for biblical inerrancy um, is stronger than the evidence that killing children is always wrong? Um, could a reasonable person disagree and like do like a Morian shift on it? So I think it's talking about like, um, I was reading Randall Rouser's book, like a theologian on like Old Testament violence. And he, um, he kind of concludes it's, it's just very obvious that like um, any sort of like, um removal of the people or like genocide or like like any of these like interpretations like they're just wrong they're morally wrong um so there must be some s sort of like other interpretation for these texts um so i'm curious like what your thoughts are on this idea ken well let's let me give you uh let me give you an example um let's go back to world war ii um mm. should the allies have bombed the civilian cities. You know, we have Dresden, where maybe 40,000 people were killed. Uh, since Nazi Germany was a very serious threat, um, was it wrong for the Allies uh, to carry out that kind of bombing? Uh, or let's, let's take it to the Pacific. I mean, the Allies made the decision that they would drop atomic bombs now we debate back and forth. How about if America had invaded the Japanese islands? Some propose that there may have been uh, 500 million American casualties, maybe multi-million uh, deaths of Japanese citizens. Uh, you could propose that the using the atomic weapons that did kill civilians, nevertheless brought the war to an end with less number of deaths. So here I'm asking the question, how do you bring judgment against evildoers and always indicate that there's never going to be any, you know, uh, any innocent people taken? I would come back to it and say it this way. And I know that Randall Rousler takes a different position. And I think he's a very thoughtful person. And I, I respect his point of view. I would say, however, that... Uh, these people were engaged in reprobate activity. They refused to repent. Uh, and I think that they were violating uh, God's law to a point where God says, I can no longer put up with this. Uh, so again, I come back to the idea, God is good, but he's not safe. God, remember, God is perfectly holy, righteous, and good. You, you, can't, be, you can't be loving without justice. You can't be a God of justice without love. They go together. And so, yes, this is the wrath of God. This is the judgment of God. But uh, he did it before in the flood. And uh, God, is a, God is a being of morality that you have to deal with. So I take a different position than Randall Rouser does. Uh, but I want people to realize, too, that uh, what would what would secular people do uh, if you knew that if you knew that injustice was being uh, happening? Um, how would you handle all of these kinds of things? So, I think you can defend God's actions with the Canaanites. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate your answer there, um, Ken. And the next question is from Swift C, which says, when it comes to the Bible and slavery, what does the New Covenant say about it? Um, so we talked about, um, like, you know, like Old Testament ethics and such, but like, how do you look at like slavery in light of like the New Covenant and what it has to say about slavery? Yeah, I appreciate that question very much. Uh, I think what we see in the New Testament, uh, Galatians 3.28, 
Now, now remember that uh, slavery, there was much slavery in the Roman Empire. Some have even suggested it could have been 90% of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. I don't know if that percentage is exactly accurate, but there's no doubt that there were lots of slaves in the Greco-Roman civilization. What we see, however, in, in Galatians 3.28 is Paul makes a revolutionary statement. He says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jews and Gentiles had been in great hostility with one another. No difference between male or female. I mean, in the Roman Empire, men were, were viewed as superior to women. You might even make that case in parts of Judaism. So no difference between Jew, Gentiles, slave or free. In the New Testament, uh, there were people who were slaves, but before the Lord, they were free men. And the free men before the Lord were, were slaves. I think that the biblical morality ultimately ended up defeating slavery in much of the Western world. And I think the key idea was that people are made in the image of God. They do have value. They do have dignity. And, and now, now suppose, I mean, I hear comments from atheists who say, why are you trying to defend genocide or defend slavery? I'm not trying to defend either. I don't think those things in the Old Testament constitute slavery and genocide. But let me turn the table, if I could. If you don't believe people are made in the image of God, are you then taking away the primary reason that people condemn slavery? I mean, if you don't believe that people have ultimate dignity extended eternally, then why not a survival of the fittest if there, there is no God? Um, I think that uh, in the New Testament, we discover that if you're in Christ, you, uh, you are to treat your brother uh, with grace. You're to treat them, to love them as, as you love yourself, regardless of their wealth, their class, their sex, uh, or whether they're indentured servants. Mm, I appreciate that. And then Tom Holland wrote a really good book called Dominion talking about how like a lot of our ideas of like values and such is ultimately rooted in like Christian values. Um, so that's worth considering. The last question um, we'll have probably today, Ken, is again from Jonah. And it's really a question to kind of wrap things up here. When he says, um, what beliefs, actions do you think are needed to wear the label of Christian and which issues are less significant? Um, so I guess like thinking about like, um, like to be a Christian, you need to like believe this or like follow this way. Um, and then the other issues are like maybe like secondary issues then. Yeah, appreciate that question to, to Jono there. Um, well, I, I think, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about mere Christianity. I think if you looked at, for example, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I think that that's a very helpful summary of Christian belief. Uh, you know, it, it distinguishes the, the, the person's father, son, and spirit as being three persons within the Godhead talks about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It talks about uh, the Christian church. So I think if you're looking for a brief summary of Christian teachings, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed is kind of a summary of that. But realize it also extends um, you know, to the idea of values. Uh, Christians believe deeply in the dignity of human beings. 
Uh, we believe in marriage. Uh, we believe that God has ordained government. I think we also carry worldview ideas that the world was created, that human beings rebelled, that Christ came into the world to redeem us, and there will be a consummation. So those are some of, and see, I'm not trying to cherry pick. I'm not saying you should go to the Methodist or to the Lutherans or the Baptist. I think the creeds reflect kind of a universal creedal or mere Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's super helpful, Ken. So I appreciate that. Um, your your book doesn't cover anything arguments from beauty, right? I'm correct in that um, diagnosis. Yeah, I see Chris's comment and question there. Um, I do have a very short section. Uh, I think it's in the twelfth chapter where I look at the question of beauty. Could uh, does does beauty require some kind of divine element? So there is a small section with recommended reading on the on the question of beauty. It's awesome. Well, Ken, I appreciate your time coming on and talking about like all these super important hard objections to Christianity. Um, so do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say before we wrap things up here? Well, one, I want to say thank you for having me on. I appreciate you're you're a young man, and I I appreciate that you're on the on the web interacting with believers and and non Christians as well. But I would invite people to give my book a read. I I try to practice what I call the golden rule of apologetics. I try to treat other people's beliefs the way I want mine treated. That doesn't mean I accept everything everybody else says, but it means that I try to be fair and I try to represent their ideas fairly. So I, I'd like to invite my, my Christian friends and non-Christian friends maybe to consider reading my book. I, I would have to say I highly recommend the book as I've been reading. It. I've really enjoyed it. So I, I I believe that if you enjoy like this kind of content, like you've been listening to now, you'll also enjoy the book. So I encourage you to check that out. It's linked down below in the description. And if you're new to our channel, I always encourage you to subscribe to it here in Apologetics. You can subscribe via the YouTube or podcast. And if you enjoy us, consider leaving a like, leaving a review. All that stuff really helps. And if you enjoy the content, you've been here for a while, please consider um, becoming a, a patron. You can support at Patreon.com here in Apologetics for as little as a dollar a month. Um, support helps a lot with keeping the show going or if you're listening via youtube just press you can join and be a member um for 199 a month right now on your way out but ken uh thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed this conversation and i wish you the best so thank you so much thank you zach and thank you to susan jono chris everyone else who turned in have a good one and god bless